0: Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of Food, is proud to announce its first sponsor of the podcast. Fin River Farm and Cidery has graciously sponsored this podcast, which features Sarah Space and the great works that she has done in conservation. Fin River and its sister uh, organization and nonprofit, Chimacum Center, have both focused on community, arts, ecology, and social justice, and intersects with food love in many different ways. Thank you again for making the production of this podcast possible. This is Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. Today's guest is Sarah Speth of the Jefferson Land Trust in Port Townsend, Washington. I've been trying to get this interview for a long time with Sarah. She's she's super busy. There isn't any, there's not a time when she's not doing something to to sort of, in my mind, save the earth, um, but also to preserve what's best and most beautiful about the community in which we live in the natural world. Um, My son, for example, was just at the Ilahi Preserve and watching the salmon run. And I really want to thank you first, just that he had that experience, because it wouldn't be possible without the Jefferson Land Trust. Um, and I first met you, Sarah, by phone, right? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it was Christy Kistler who put us together. She said, Rafina, if you're really interested in uh, preserving land for agrarian use or getting involved in some of these things uh, with your legal background then you need to know Sarah. And so the first time we spoke, I think we talked for about an hour and a half. I think that's true. <laughs> yeah, because because you're phenomenal. And, um, and what we talked about was a whole range of things because you really know how to get these really massive land transactions done in a way that um, preserves the most essential things about environmental protection, really. That's a huge deal. Mm. Um, Do you want to talk to us a little bit about your relationship to this place? Like, how did you pick this place? What do you love about Jefferson County and the natural environment um, that is at the heart of it? Um, And even, you know, I, I should have said this at the beginning. Sarah is the director of conservation at the Jefferson Land Trust. And to me, that's like such a big, important title, Mm-hmm. And, and yet when you talk to Sarah, she has an incredible sense of humility mm-hmm. and, you know, what a gift that is for our community, uh, because you could talk to her about anything. Like she spoke to me for an hour and a half the first time I called her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Okay. So Sarah, tell us about that. What do you love uh, about this place?
1: Thank you. And
0: we're masked. So as a public service announcement, we're indoors, um, but we're choosing, even though we're both vaccinated, to mask. Um, So if you hear a difference in sound quality, that's the reason, but enjoy the podcast anyway.
1: (laughs) Yes. So I have uh, the great privilege of having grown up in the Puget Sound Salish Sea area and always as a kid just really felt this strong connection to wild places and you know, crabbing on um. in the waters and catching fish and digging clams and picking berries. And, and, uh, and I always was fascinated with, with things that were old and had history. Mm. And I always wanted to homestead. I kind of had wished that I could homestead somewhere. And so when I finally, you know, I moved away from home, I spent a little stint down in the Bay Area. But when I came back, I was really ready to find a place and I had remembered coming to Port Townsend when I was just a little one and had reconnected with some friends here. And so I was drawn to the Olympic Peninsula because not only did it have the beaches and the marine environment that that I'd studied in college and but the mountains were there and and then just all of this amazing history. And so I spent time here in my early twenties. And then when I met my husband, he was living here and um, we settled here over th- just about 30 years ago. Oh, wow. And um, and just, it's been such an incredible gift to me, to be able to get to know this place through the lens of the Land Trust. Mm. And How long have you been with the Land Trust? It's 25 years. 25. So virtually
0: almost the entire time you've lived here. Yes. Amazing. Just That's about. an amazing commitment.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, that's been an interesting um, thing to to be a part of, just that I I was one of the very first staff people here. Wow. And now we're up to, I think, 13. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been in almost every position here with the land Trust. Wow. And really am happy to be no longer the executive director, but doing the the conservation work, which is the nearest and dearest to my heart, because it gives me this connection to place, not only through the landscapes, but through the people who live here. Mm, and nice. it's it's just been powerful and we just have such a rich landscape mm-hmm. that it always inspires me in so many ways. So well, that's why I'm happy to be here. <laughs> that's awesome, and it's it's really lovely to hear as a member of the community,
0: um, recognizing like just constantly reading about the different projects that are going on. It's um, such fast progress, you know, and it's so progressive. I think, and and people might not really know that much about land trusts. Um, when I was younger, I was in Wisconsin. And my father and I worked with the Ozaki Land Trust um, because there was a parcel of land next to where we lived, and it was several acres, um, but it belonged to the Ojibwe tribe. And we are we are broadcasting from what I would say is the the sacred land of um, the Jamestown Skyllum tribe and uh, Coast Salish peoples. So so there's a lot that we learn from caring about our environments, caring about the the land itself um, that follows, hopefully in a respectful way, um, the traditions of the people who came before us. And so the land trust basically helps make sure that when the land gets transferred, there's you're, well, why don't you explain like how you hold the public in mind You know, and how you balance in this conservation work the human impact of access to certain places that are environmentally important with the idea that you're really trying to, you know, preserve those spaces um, so that they're here long into the future, right? Past our own existence on the planet, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. So the Land Trust has several tools in our toolbox that we use to preserve land in perpetuity, really. Mm -hmm. And those include owning land and also working with private landowners to preserve conservation values on land that they continue to own and continue to be able to transfer on to the next generation of owners. And in each of those situations, we're really trying to understand what are the unique features of that land? What are the conservation values that are important to protect for future generations, um, whether it's future generations of people or the wildlife brethren that we share this landscape Mm -hmm. with? Mm -hmm. And so um, what we're looking for is, does this land really benefit from being protected for no human or little human use because it's a rich wildlife habitat area. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, the land trust would probably acquire it and then um, make sure that the, the access to it is controlled. Mm-hmm. But we also own land that we call ambassador lands, like the Ilihee Preserve, okay. where you took your son yeah. to see the spawning salmon. I just went last week, he too. Yeah. And it's so wonderful to see the summer chum returning and and digging their reds. And because mm-hmm. I love hearing the sound of them come mm-hmm. up the river doing their, their sacred dance. Right,
0: right.
1: So... In that case, we invite the public to come and see this incredible event that takes place or enjoy the forests there. And we have ambassador lands throughout East Jefferson County where we invite okay. the public. We also own land where it's really sensitive habitat. We, we know that there are bear and cougar and mm. migrating elk that use them. And, and in that case, we would control the access more. On the lands where we hold conservation easements and they're still privately held, really what we're protecting on those cases is, you know, fragmentation and conversion um, to uses that might be detrimental to the conservation values of the property. And there's public good to that, whether it's Mm -hmm. water quality or wildlife corridors or protecting soil Mm -hmm. for future agricultural use. And. So those goals of of the conservation values, preserving those conservation values, um, the tools are really unique to the individual land. Mm. So I hope maybe I've...
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good sort of broad, you know, kind of paintbrush over all the things that you've been doing to kind of show us that picture of the breadth of the work. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that is, it is a lot that you're doing. And I'm always fascinated by when you're in this work, you have to have a certain amount of, I would say, like natural science background, right. To be able to kind of determine what these conservation values should be because the the land is dynamic, right. And even like the, the water levels are dynamic in these different places. Cause, um, I know that out in Chimic Valley, there are definitely farmers who talk about challenges with water and, to me, when I hear about that, like I would not, the, the, the land trust that I worked with in Wisconsin did not go into that depth of work. I would say, you know, where you're watching the water, you're watching the soil, you're watching the, um, animals and the habitats. Um, and you're, you're really kind of, you're not trying to control things, but you're really trying to, foster like the best natural environment really on some level so when I think about that I you know I wonder what what background did you have did you just learn this all on your own or how did you seek out the knowledge to kind of know that you could because you're leading people Mm. to embrace the same values in your outreach in your position right Mm. so how did you learn that for yourself
1: well, there's actually no training to become a land conservation yeah. <laughs> okay. all right. practitioner. Yeah. Um, I think we all, you know, in this field, we all come from really unique backgrounds. Okay. And my background had been in marine biology and mm-hmm. um, coastal resources. Mm-hmm. And and then I had also done my master's work in public access to mm-hmm. the shoreline. Okay. So I had that background. And then I heard about this concept called a land trust. Okay. And I really had never heard about it before I moved to Port Townsend. And okay. and um, and so it's really been on-the-job training okay. in what, what does a conservation value look like? And how do we... How do we evaluate each land for the conservation values that it has, but also for that human intersection? Mm -hmm. And when we expanded our mission from just being, um, you know, a land trust that focused on wildlife habitat, which so many land trusts in the earlier years did Mm -hmm. and continue to. But many land trusts across the nation have also expanded their mission to include working lands, Mm -hmm. whether it's working Mm -hmm. agricultural lands or working Mm -hmm. forest lands. And in those cases, you know, how do we how do we find that balance? How can we make sure that the human uses are consistent with the conservation values Mm -hmm. of the land, too? And and so. You know, that the understanding of the conservation values is really something that um it's not just me, it's it's this whole collective group in the in the land trusts and even the landowners. It's like, well, what are you mm-hmm. what do you see on the land? And then it also involves our partner organizations like the North Olympic Salmon Coalition mm-hmm. or the Northwest Watershed Institute or Department of Fish and Wildlife. Like what what do you know about this land? Are there mm-hmm species that utilize it that we should be mindful of. And and so how do we take all of that information and the funding sources that we use to buy land or buy easements from people to design the protection mechanism that works? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we're using salmon recovery funding from the state and they say, you know, you need to be protecting the forest that's here Um, for salmon habitat, then Mm -hmm. that's what we do. Or if we're protecting a farmland piece and we want to make sure that that Salmon Creek has a buffer, Mm -hmm. then we design that into the conservation easement as well. So it's always kind of a balancing act that includes what we know of the conservation values, what the landowner is willing to do with this permanent agreement what our funding agencies are funding, what our partner organizations are bringing to mm-hmm. the understanding of the land. Mm-hmm. So it's it's different. And I think that's what is exciting about this work, mm-hmm. sometimes really challenging. Sure, about this sure. I mean,
0: I, just listening to it, you know, I, I was long ago a real estate attorney and I'm I'm doing my iteration 2.0, um, really looking at uh, preserving agrarian lands because anybody who's out in this area knows that, Um, there's this uh, kind of looming encroachment to just develop land um, along the Olympic Peninsula. And what we really want is people who want to come here to have these conservation values in mind when they come and and to have this mindfulness about how they come into the Olympic Peninsula, because it is really such um, cherished uh, land environmentally. Like, you know, we've got rainforest on one end of it, that's so unique across the whole country. So if you come, come with some values in mind. If you don't know them, first come to the Jefferson Land Trust, get on their website and start reading mm-hmm. um, because there's so much you can, you know, it's kind of like a do-it-yourself educational program, just reading through what, what they've been doing and what they plan to do. And uh, so, so when I think about this, um, these easements that you're doing even, Like that's so technical in and of itself. Like as a former real estate attorney and one getting back into it, you, you have to know a lot to get those easements done correctly. It's specialized because you can mess that up actually pretty easily. And, and so, but, but what I remember about our first conversation is, you know, I was sitting there listening to you and I said, Sarah could easily be an attorney She has such a deep understanding. It's because you've done so many deals and you've grasped a lot um, in these transactions. And and I thought, wow, this is very impressive. And the thing that struck me also about it was that when it comes to the work you're doing, it is so community-based. You're in constant communication, constant dialogue, and and you um, you bring to light so quickly how people can understand the beauty of place and make the commitment, right? They have to make the commitment that the conservation values also lead to value, a value exchange. So that means, you know, yes, it's not really fundraising, it's friend raising really, right? And so you've, you've been able in the pandemic to pivot to bring the beauty into people's homes when they're isolated and feeling alone. And I think more than ever, people are recognizing that they need to get out into these spaces, right? For peace of mind, peace of heart, peace of spirit. And I I just think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing to bring, bring people into those spaces, whether they can get there or not. I'm really curious. I have not yet seen a land trust and it could just be my ignorance that has taken the bold steps that you have, um, you know, with your executive director, Richard, too, to have really important conversations about land use, preservation, and inclusion. That's to me pioneering. And it tells me a lot about the organization. Um, it also tells me a lot how um, mindful um, you've been in approaching the conversation taking steps toward talking to farmers of color and talking to people from the community. You know, I was uh, fortunate to be part of one of the early conversations around this. And I think we sort of paused because we realized um, there were people who who wanted to be at the table, but it was such an early conversation. It was just sort of sorting out some things to see what do we need to even talk about. And so I imagine those will continue on, but you've already done deep work. Um when we when I saw the Kuamoto let me say it the right way, maybe you should tell me how to say it. Kawamoto. Uh, Kawamoto um farm in Quilcene. You helped to produce that video, right? Is that right? Did you help produce that video?
1: The The video that was about the family history? Yeah. Actually, we did not. Oh, that okay. It was done a number of years ago by okay. Pamela Roberts. Oh, okay. And just a great video about the story. Oh, my story. Gosh.
0: It's on YouTube. Um, people should search for it. And um, to tie it with your blog post, I guess, then, um, about what the work in Quilcene to preserve this farm for agrarian use and for a sort of continuing legacy. I, I just think that's that's brand new work for a land trust. So can, would you tell us about it and what it was like to sort of how you moved an organization in that direction collectively as a team?
1: Yeah, I think first off, I'll say that I've been really impressed and inspired by the conversation at the national level around inclusivity in Mm. the land conservation movement. Mm. But there's a recognition that we have a long way to go and that land trusts now are really taking that deep look at how we have been exclusionary and, and that we've got to go the extra mile to to make sure that we're mindful of underserved communities. And so I think for Jefferson Land Trust, that's that's involved those early conversations that we had with Chunkham Center and you, and, and then we um, helped bring Tuskegee University folks up here mm-hmm. to facilitate a conversation in the BIPOC community around what are the barriers to land access. Mm -hmm. And it was really great to um, bring back the two interns that had been here several years ago from Tuskegee Mm -hmm. and then um, uh, Dr. Jazz and um, and another Tuskegee graduate student who's working on her PhD to help facilitate this conversation. Mm -hmm. So we had that probably about a month ago Mm -hmm. And I think we're waiting for some of the findings of that. How that effort has played out with regard to the Kawamoto Farm is that we're working with our Landworks Collaborative partners, uh, Jefferson Landworks Collaborative, including WSU Cooperative Extension, Mm. North Olympic Development Council, the Food Co-op, the Conservation District, Craft3, all of those partners are committed to the triple bottom line around agricultural mm-hmm. lands, not yeah. only preserving them, but seeing that they're productive and that we have the markets and the social capital to support the the really important local food movement that I right. have going on here. Mm-hmm. And
0: so in the past... And let's stop for a second sure. because we haven't... For the people who haven't seen the video and don't know about the farm... Um, The family itself um, had um, family members, the parents, interned um, as part of the Japanese internment. Um, And it's tragic. It's a tragic story. Um, And yet, in terms of community, their dairy farm, um, they left in the hands of their neighbors. What I understood from um, from the video was that they were coming from Squin and they stayed there. Is that right? The neighbors? The, the neighbors. Or, I so...
1: I've gosh. heard two different
0: things. Well, maybe I'll go yeah. back and watch it, but
1: yeah. again. I know that the neighbors in the Lake Leland area, which is where the farm is, mm-hmm. we're also really looking out for them. Them, Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, but, but that's a lot to take
0: over a whole dairy farm and wait for people to be yes. able to return in such a painful time in history and in this local area to recognize that If you were here on the Olympic Peninsula, there's almost not a single part of land that you could see that hasn't been touched by some level of racial erasure. Mm. That's huge, right? And I think one of the most important things that you're doing is holding space for that conversation to kind of shine a light there and to re-examine what can be done now. So to be able to be looking uh, force for someone to own it who maybe would have a tie to um the culture the heritage of the family and also that agrarian commitment right that's such a huge commitment and but to to have even spotted that as something worthy of doing worthy of putting funds behind it's really commendable you just
1: you know can't say enough about it yeah thank you i I think that it's a It's an honor to work with Margie Kawamoto, who is the family member who still lives there, and she's kept the family history alive and has been really committed to working with the Land Trust Mm -hmm. and our LandWorks partners. And so now we're in this process of um, we've put out this opportunity Mm -hmm. and encouraged people from underserved communities to apply Mm -hmm. and today we're going to be sending out um, the full application process to the many many people that have submitted a letter of interest Mm -hmm. for this. Oh fabulous. And then we have a really diverse selection committee that will be weighing and ranking all of these applications Mm -hmm. to find the next future buyer of the farm which will not only um, the land trust and partners have reserved the right to have an interpretive display on the farm that tells the history of the land mm-hmm. and, and of the Japanese American family. Mm-hmm. And, but we also will have conservation easements that will protect the farm for farming and for forestry. Right, and
0: that's a delicate balance, It is especially a delicate with balance. dairy because dairy farms in fact produce a lot of methane Right, and the and number of things about how the waters run, like the groundwater, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit
1: about it, that? Well, it hasn't been a dairy for a long
0: time. Oh, okay. So it may not be it may in not that be tradition dairy. once
1: it... Okay, right. that's good to know. Too. It more recently has been um, for cattle and okay. for hay production. Okay. But you know, it remains to be seen what the future landowner will want to do with the property, and it's um, you know, it's got some challenges. It's an old farm that has has some need for improvements. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we we know mm-hmm. that it will be a unique person or par- parties mm-hmm. to take it over and bring it back to life. But we're excited, and we're also really, um, I think the LandWorks partners really feel. Committed to this process of really broadcasting the opportunity far and wide, and making sure that we got it out, we actually had the application translated into Japanese and Beautiful. into Spanish, wow. and and we really have encouraged applicants from diverse backgrounds to apply. So yeah, yeah, I I think that's amazing,
0: and um, I'll have to talk more with you about that later because mm-hmm. that process is important. Um, Wow. So, so tell me maybe let's let's talk a little bit more about um maybe numbers. How how much property in total like if you know land mass has the land trust been able to preserve to date?
1: Well, we like to say that we've helped protect over 17,000 acres wow. in, in in Jefferson County. And I actually think that it could be more because of partnerships that we Ah, have helped with. So, um, but that includes, we hold conservation easements on, I think, 66 lands now. So with multiple private landowners. Mm -hmm. And then we own about 700 acres of preserves. Mm -hmm. And um, we're really excited about working with the community to preserve Chimacum Ridge, which Mm -hmm. will eventually hopefully at the end of 2023, become the Chimicum Ridge Community Forest. Oh, beautiful. And that's another 853 acres. Mm. And that is probably the biggest project that I will work on in my, Yeah, yeah. My career with sure. Land Trust. Yeah, and a also one that we're just really wanting to engage all of our community in helping us envision what it will be like and how do we make it and an accessible place and project for all. So we're, we're very excited about that project. And we've already got a lot of great public um, community members and, and organizations involved in, in helping us with that project so far. So that's amazing. It's just it, really phenomenal. Um, the, the,
0: the amount, <laughs> you know, like, it's just, that's never letting up in my mind. Like there's probably <sighs> your, You know, I can imagine in some ways it might feel like a constant state of triage with the complexity of things.
1: It (laughs) truly is. Like the other project that we've had going on for so long is the Quimper Wildlife Corridor Project Mm. at Cappy's Woods. Yeah, it's beautiful there. We just, in the last two weeks... Um, have protected an additional 24 acres, which wow. is
0: big. And so is that about expanding uh, the space. When you say that you've you kind of you've hit a new milestone with it, or is it <clears throat> doing something with those lands? Well, it's, and it's
1: actually acquiring more okay. puzzle pieces in yeah. this bigger project area. Okay. and this this project was what I was hired for originally oh, back in 1996. Wow. wow, and it's so funny because. You know, early on, we sent out letters to everybody who owned small little parcels in this area of Port Townsend that had been platted back in the Uh 1880s into 50 by 100 foot lots. Oh, wow. And and so just today I had someone drop off a purchase and sale agreement for a property that I remember writing a letter to them in 1996. Wow. And just wow. now, they're finally ready to sell. <laughs> so. Wow,
0: that's an amazing. So so I think that's a testament to how people evolve, mm-hmm. right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, like, and, and how you've maintained relationship. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the most important things about the way nonprofits work um, and why I've been so impressed by Jefferson Land Trust is that you are truly relational mm-hmm. in the way that you bring people into your community. It's not transactional. It's not that you talk to them in 1996 and you forgot about them because they didn't cough up any land. It's, mm-hmm. it's that you recognize that you, you probably had shared values because they wouldn't have bought the property if they didn't appreciate something about that land mm-hmm. and that space. And that that nexus of connection binds you. Right, that you don't forget that that person's important because, on some level, every landowner you meet is also a land steward. Yes. Right. And then, how do they evolve? Um, but by being in relationship, you can help each other. Right. You educate each other about the things you cherish. So that that would manifest later, and that you would have the the precious moment to realize that. Like that's beautiful.
1: Yes. And you know, I, I think your comment on community is so true because it it takes those landowners. I mean, they're they're fundamentally where it starts, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't have a willing landowner who wants to work with you, either to, sell you their land for permanent preservation or to donate an easement or they are they are the ultimate community members that that we rely on mm-hmm. to help us do our work but it also takes the the stewards that help us with maintenance of the lands that we own it it takes the the donors that have the means to support us doing this work it it is so full spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really does take the village yeah. for, for this work to be possible. And I think that's what's been so fulfilling for me um, is that it's not just the transactions, it's mm-hmm. the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it, it includes the Wild Brethren as well. Yeah, <laughs> I
0: love that you say that, the Wild Brethren, because So in this first conversation that Sarah and I had, I'll have to go back to it a little bit to tell you why I was like, I've got to interview Sarah. There are a couple of reasons actually. Um, But one of them was that somehow in conversation, I found out that she she is like highly certified in tracking animals, right? And it, it takes a certain mindset to want to learn that, I think. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think it's related to this concept of seeing these, you know, wild living creatures as brethren.
1: I love to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, go for (laughs) it, go as much as you want.
0: And so I'll just say, too, that I have sometimes, like, I have sent, um, a photo when I noticed this claw mark on a tree to Sarah. And I'm like, Sarah, what is this?
1: (laughs) That that is so much more um, mild than the multiple pictures of scat that I'm... (laughs) 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 Right, that's
0: that's deep. Like when you are into the excrement of your wild brethren, you want to know them. You want to really know them. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah.
1: It's a great way to get to know them, by the way. (laughs) Oh, so... For me, this um, intersection of tracking and land conservation has just grown deeper and deeper with time. Okay. I was introduced to wildlife tracking through the land trust sponsoring a wildlife tracking evaluation with one of our national tracking experts, Steve, Dave Moskowitz. And Dave has for years come out to the peninsula and led these evaluations that were through an organization called Cyber Tracker International, and now it's Tracking Certification North America. I went with Dave and this group of people out to one of the preserves that the land trust owns on the Duckabush River. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've grown up in the Northwest. I've always loved to hike and hang out on the beach. I spent a lot of time in Southeast Alaska. But being there on that land and going through this rigorous process of needing to just sink into place to to pick up minute details of what I call the first alphabet, Mm. because truly... The, the sign that animals leave bef- behind, we had to know mm-hmm. as a species in order to survive. Right. And so, you know, whether it's a track in the mud or whether it's a nibble on a tree or a scratch mark mm-hmm. on a trunk, all those signs can tell you who's using the land. And so for me, it was like having this eye-opening experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I was blown away. I was just like, oh, you know, intellectually, I've known that I'm protecting these lands for all the animals that Department of Fish and Wildlife have told me live here. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really know until I started on this journey of learning how to read that alphabet. Mm -hmm. And so now, um, you know, I, I actually have really... So enjoyed being able to um, viscerally follow the elk Ooh. that that spend time on the Duckabush Preserve, and then last summer I hiked all the way up into the upper watershed oh, wow. of the Duckabush, okay. up into the headwaters in La Crosse Basin, and there was the elk herd mm-hmm. that I know I've seen their beds and I've seen oh, their wow. signs on our preserve. Wow, and there were eight black bears up there feeding on black bears, and I'm sure that the bear sign that I've seen down on the duckabush in that duckabush lower area are some of those same bears that I was seeing up there. And just to have that that specific information from seeing the track, but the ecological tracking mm. perspective of what's the animal behavior, what are they doing when they're here in the winter and up high in the watershed Mm -hmm. in the summer. And why do they go back and forth? Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so enriched my, my life, but my uh, appreciation for the work that I've been able to do Mm -hmm. through the land trusts and, um, and now also through this whole tracking community, because I can kind of bring the conservation perspective Mm -hmm. to the tracking classes that I'm helping teach. That's
0: amazing. That's amazing because, uh, you know, just you telling me that story, my my mind is connecting these dots because I had interviewed um, Jessica Plum, who, you know, was like the big reveal. She started talking about the salmon forests and how, you know, the makeup of our trees in these forests is salmon matter, right? Um, brought to it by, um, brought to the forest by uh, the bears and, and things like that. But when you start to think about how much mileage or how much territory these different animals actually use, right? Like they have their own super highways, right? But the more we infringe upon space, the more we make their world smaller. And that will also change behaviors, right? So so what you're telling me like to have, to know this about place, like right now my brain is firing and it's saying, Oh, it makes me even more upset that when I go into these spaces and I take like a day hike or something with my family and I see all this litter in places, like it's actually painful. It's painful to see because, you know, I could speak to it. And my, my son, we took this cross country trip, RVing. And we're RVing because we want to be closer to spaces like this. But his idea for the trip was we should really pick up litter everywhere we go. And I was like, yes, you know, we should do that. Like everyone should do that because it doesn't, you know, we're, it's, it's one thing to get the legal protection and it's another thing to get the people to preserve the land but there's also this fundamental easy step that everybody can take. Like when you go to a space, you take that die hike, pick up the trash, right? It's not a hard thing. But but we know that the bears can't pick up the trash. The elk can't pick up the trash. So, you know, caring for them as though they are brethren really relates to how we come into spaces with them, whether they're there or not there, because it's still part of their home. Yes,
1: and and I think you've really touched on something that I so appreciate from Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Breeding Sweetgrass, oh, is yeah, this yeah, concept yeah. of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we just integrate that into our life? How mm-hmm. do we give back to what's being given to us? Mm-hmm. And that we all have whatever small role we can play mm-hmm. and understand that um, we are a part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. We've always been a part of the landscape. Right, but right. how do we... How do we nurture place? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that we can all do some part. Yeah.
0: We, we can all play some role in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that we had this remarkable moment on the Dungeness River. We went hiking and um, we were sitting there and some of those stones, the way the water laps up on them, they almost look like the the big rocks in or boulders, I guess, in Sekiu. And it must just be the way the water hits. Um, but we were standing there and had such peace in this moment with the, you know, sky being blue and the water looking almost teal and these butterflies, there were two different varieties of butterflies by the water. And one of them actually alighted on my partner's hand. And I was like, wow, this is, this is so Disney without Disney. (laughs) And And then I thought to myself, people don't know, like, what does that mean for you when, There's enough peace in you and your surroundings that a butterfly feels safe to land on your hand. Mm -hmm. And not just that, but my my partner then handed this butterfly to my son and the butterfly sat on his finger. That was remarkable. And and I thought, wow. And for me, watching this happen, you know, it was a moment without phones, which was beautiful in and of itself. And I am a big fan. Problem when it comes to phones in our family and trying to capture these moments. I was not like that before, necessarily. But but when I realized how we need to slow ourselves down and take that time to be in nature, it actually is so restorative. And more and more people are doing that. Um, And the good part of it is people are doing it. The bad part of it is that more people are doing it. And and so like you know, there's this like there there needs to be this conscientious approach to how we are in it, how we take up space in these natural places. And, um, you know, I, I, th- I think about, you know, how we, we all have to learn, like for me, the work that you're doing in conservation should be part of the curriculum in every school. Right. And, th- and then I also think that children who are living in urban centers, they need most to come into these places of peace um, in the natural environment and begin to understand their natural brethren, right? The wild brethren. So there is something about that, that I keep wondering, you know, when will these spaces, you know, that intersection of nonprofits and the good work that they do and the stakeholders they have and how they begin to explore inclusion, right? It's, it's both about thinking about how does ownership work when, property is in some ways at the at the heart of what people have begun I mean some people have been talking about it forever but some people are just waking up to the idea that that is a piece of you know what has created structural racism and so anyway I just you know that was just a long-winded ramble <laughs> but, but I wondered what your thoughts were about things like that like bringing you know people who who may not have access? How do we
1: get them here? Yeah, that's such a good question, and I so agree with you that. But it's those moments, those moments when we just sink into place mm-hmm. and we slow down and we are present and we open our eyes to, to the experience that that are to me spiritual. Yeah, that is yeah. where I find my my deep sense of being and and place and spiritual renewal and how important that is for all of us to be connected to that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the land trust here certainly believes so strongly in connecting our community and those visitors to our community through experiences on the land, whether it's um, through educational programs that we've we bring every single school district one certain grade to the Lhe preserve or to one of our other preserves, particularly when the salmon are spawning mm-hmm. so that children get that experience and and have that baseline understanding. of course baseline always changes. I remember when I was a kid and I saw the first, salmon spawning stream when I was 10 and there were so many salmon Mm -hmm. this was near Granite Falls I was astounded well now we don't see as many salmon Mm -hmm. but still there are salmon here to see and how do we make sure that our children understand that Mm -hmm. and how do we how do we make welcome these spaces for people that don't live here and I think that is the challenge of the time it's like what, what are the barriers that are preventing those Mm -hmm. kids from Seattle getting here? Right. And certainly, you know, we, we welcome all, but, Mm -hmm. but I think we're still trying to figure out how do we, how do we overcome some of those barriers that aren't in our faces? Right. Right. And
0: some of which it's very difficult to do something about unless you have the gift that you have, which is partnering, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you've already partnered in this space, but then what does it mean to partner later? But you can't do that until, you know, you've got your, your project list. I mean, it's, it's a lot, but those, those types of um, challenges are ones where, you know, the collective has to come together so that no one organization is holding all of it, I think, um, because it's, it's such a bigger challenge. Yeah. And, you know that that moment sitting by that uh, the Dungeness River for me, I was reflecting on how good it felt, like just in my whole body, right, in my mind, um, to be near the water and to to see the butterfly, to see all this stuff, and um, I thought to myself, in so many ways, we've built up society to create these businesses we've you know created all this work for us to do right all this work for us to do and we get to the place and and some people in the city particularly get to a place where they're somewhat burnt out and they they do so well to return to natural environments and so it's it's almost in my mind a little comical how we built up all these things to have these buildings these structures and all we really need to do is get back to what we would have had if we had never built any of it right (laughs) right and that's where that's where we're like ah i can breathe and the air is so good
1: and you know that's true that's so true yeah and you know just reflecting on this a little further i think it starts by demonstrating that we are welcoming Mm -hmm. so even if we haven't specifically connected with an organization or, or specific people in an urban area. I think, I think if we can demonstrate that that community forest that we're creating on Chimicum Ridge in 2023 has engaged our broader community here and, and really demonstrated that we want this to be a place for all. Hopefully that starts to just trickle out Mm -hmm. and, and that, Well, some of those barriers for diverse community members may have been very fundamental. Like, is it a safe place for me to go? Mm -hmm. That by demonstrating that we want to make it a safe place for everyone to go, that that will, that message will get out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. And, And even
0: as you develop those things, you know, I think about, um, the 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 chimicum peoples who are still around um who who voice you know their concern and, and sometimes their anger that people say the chimicum peoples aren't here anymore. It's not true. Mm-hmm. Those are sensitive things that I think um you know we would all do well to begin to understand more deeply because you know, making progress, sometimes it will feel like making two steps forward and you make two steps back because you have to make space for the, the growth part, right? Where you have these harder conversations and what will that look like? You so know? True. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that's really, I'm excited about that and I'll definitely be, be following that. And I hope everybody else follows it too, right? Because that's a big lift. Yeah, it's a big lift. It's a big lift. So let me see here. Let's talk about how, yeah, how hard it is to start a farm in mm-hmm. Chimicum Valley and why that is when it, when it comes to water usage. And then maybe what advice would you give to a new farmer
1: in that area? Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of challenges starting a new farm in Chimicum. And I think number one, even before water, is avail- availability of land. Yeah, that too. That... You know, it's just really hard to even hear of land that's coming up for sale. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing such a dramatic increase in property values these Mm -hmm. days that, you know, it's happening everywhere. And I think it's happening here because of climate refugees Mm -hmm. and also because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the um, flight from urban areas and areas that are are experiencing greater climate challenges. Mm -hmm. And so those are some barriers that are really tough to overcome. And some of the tools that the Land Trust has with farmland preservation funding have been able to help in the past. And it gets harder when they're smaller pieces of land that already have zoning for just one house mm-hmm. and and you know the the funding that we're potentially available to get to buy a conservation easement may not be highly competitive if we're we're still allowing that one development right to be used right right so well then
0: there's a challenge though too because if you're actually farming because of the housing crisis you don't necessarily have the ability to kind of have the systems like the septic systems to create a special housing unit for your workers. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, that farm worker housing is um, obviously a really big thing these days too. And so, you know, what is, what is farm worker housing under state law is something that people need to understand. And I don't even fully understand what's yeah, yeah, yeah. under state law, but you're right. I mean, what, if, if you have a standard development right under County code, what sort of additional capacity can you provide for farm worker housing? Mm-hmm. So all that said is that sometimes our tools that we wish could be available to help with access to land aren't always available just given the specific zoning or mm-hmm. the, the, um, the threat, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, I'd say that that, that's where it can be challenging and frustrating for us Mm -hmm. because we aren't necessarily able to help. Mm -hmm. I think some of the other challenges, though, are water. Mm -hmm. And you brought that up because it's a very real concern in, in some of our watersheds more than others. Okay, And Chimicum Watershed is particularly challenging because there was a study done of the groundwater availability that... Um, is is available for domestic water use, but is limited because we need to have a certain volume of water in both the main stem and uh, East Fork of Chimicum Creek uh, it, for salmon. Right. And the, the summer chum salmon were listed in the Chimicum watershed in the, I think it was the late nineteen. 19- Eighties because um, they were pretty much completely wiped out. So listed on the endangered species list. Listed on the endangered Mm -hmm. species Mm -hmm. list.
0: And can can you walk just the average listener who doesn't necessarily have these conversations in mind? What does it mean? Like the groundwater has to be a certain level in order for the water in the creek to be a certain level for them to be able to swim and breed. Is that yes?
1: In order for them to be able. To have enough water to spawn and survive. Okay. And so, actually, Chimacum Creek has a number of salmonid species, the main ones being summer chum, fall chum, and coho salmon. There's also cutthroat, I think. Okay. And the summer chum are the ones that spawn in the lower reaches of the creek, and they depend on water quality and water quantity and temperature. They need cool, all salmonids need cool water. Mm-hmm. And they were completely wiped out because of a, a situation where uh, a log jam happened under Ar- Irondale Road. And when that log jam busted through in a big storm event, the sediment that had been trapped completely wow. covered the spawning grounds oh, in the lower wow. main stem. And at the time, there was an organization called Wild Olympic Salmon some really committed community volunteers like Tom J and Sarah Mall and Al Latham and just a lot of people got together and managed to break apart the sediment. Wow, that's
0: amazing. I mean, Tom J is legendary. He's legendary. For so many things and this is, this is the the story. This is
1: the story. So they were down there breaking down the cemented spawning grounds Mm -hmm. and then they started, um, they started to bring the salmon back by using Salmon Creek salmon eggs oh. to and raise them in headwaters of Chimicum Creek. Oh. And then they did this release process every year. Mm. So it was a, a, an enhancement project to bring the salmon back to Chimicum Creek. Wow. And, and then um, the Land Trust and Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Conservation District and North Olympic Salmon Coalition all recognized, okay, we need to make sure that these these spawning grounds and critical habitat are protected. And so that really led to early efforts on the part of what we call the Chum Sortium. Ah, That's,
0: <laughs> that's great. <laughs>
1: um, to to work together in partnership to see the important salmon habitat protected in Chimacum Creek. So And that, of course, led us up the watershed into the agricultural lands. Okay. And that dovetails with the study that was done that said there needs to be a certain volume of water in the creek for the salmon. Okay. And so they did this extensive groundwater study. I think Department of Ecology was involved. And they said, basically, no more wells can be drilled except 100 and something for domestic use only wow that i mean that's so specific it's very specific very specific and it and it says a domestic use and i don't quote me on this but i think it only allows like 500 gallons for domestic use not even watering your garden that's huge
0: 500 gallons is not that much uh, you know for our audience to understand um in this RV experiment and living for us, part of what I was trying to do is understand sustainability a little bit more. And when you um, are using an RV, you think about the water use so much more than you do anywhere else because we've gone boondocking in parts of the country. And so for every about two minutes, you're using approximately, I think, three, two to three gallons of water when you're showering. And I remember the first time I like let myself just have a full shower. I think I used about 30 gallons, right? We don't think about that when we're living in homes and and doing that kind of thing. We, we just use our water. It just comes. It's like magic. We don't care. I mean, some people care, you know, but, but we're not really tracking it. So when you think about that kind of number, that's,
1: it's, it's, it's small. And mm-hmm. and this is where I say, don't quote me on it. So. Yeah. Yes. Um, but that said, you know, so right now, if anybody wanted to build a new home on a piece of property, they could drill a well for domestic use, but they wouldn't be able, unless there was already a water right mm-hmm. to irrigate. Okay. And so that's where looking into what are the water rights that go right. with any given property. Right. Are there existing water rights or is there a water certificate that said you could use water for irrigation? That is a really important thing um, that any person wanting to farm in the Chimkum Valley really do their due diligence. Right. And if it's a piece that that doesn't have those rights, then you got to think about well, what are other agricultural uses that I could do that don't require water? Right. Yeah. So I think to me that's a fundamental question, and then I would say another thing that I would encourage anyone wanting to farm in Chimacum to do is to really understand community dynamic. Mm. Who who are the other farmers? What mm. are they growing? Mm-hmm. What are the gaps right. that we have in our food system? We have so many. So many. So many. I, I served on the
0: Food System Resiliency Task Force for Jefferson County with at least um, 14 to 15 other people from different organizations or with different expertise. And um, it was alarming to me, you know, that that there were so many gaps in what's, what's being grown and that currently we couldn't feed the people on the peninsula with, um, what is being grown. And, you know, I think because I had some culinary background in my experience, I specifically spoke to the idea that, you know, with what we have growing, we actually couldn't have the nutritious balance that we would need. Um, we, we wouldn't, we might be able to get everybody calorically where they need to be, um, you know, in a pandemic where supply chain is, you know, completely cut off if the hood canal went down or something, but, but we wouldn't actually have balance, which is a different, you know, part of how we eat. And, and so, you know, this concept of knowing what your neighbors are growing. Yeah. I think, I don't think we're there yet. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, how people are coming in. We have um, at least the good thing is we have more young people coming in and farming. Like that's like, that's major news. Cause I remember, you know, 20 years ago, people were just leaving that. And now people who've never had that experience are getting the training because the educational institutions are putting out great programs. And then there are these mentoring programs now where people can come to farms and learn um, and then begin their own. But You know, that's, I think, step one, you know, some form of succession planning in the community. But then this dovetailing of efforts around really creating a complete holistic food system, that's like the next frontier, I think, for our general community.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I I think that it's not just understanding what people are growing, but talking with the food co-op and the corner Mm -hmm. farm stand. and What do they need? What do they need? And what, you know, just... Um, you know, one one more recent farm has stepped into the egg void Mm -hmm. and and is now producing a lot of eggs. And Mm -hmm. I'm just waiting for someone to really grow a lot of garlic because garlic (laughs) is a high, you know, high value product. Mm -hmm. And then I'm hoping that someone will bring back a dairy and we can get Mm. local butter yeah oh my gosh butter local Uh, butter and local cheese which yeah Yeah. we do have some
0: beautiful local cheese i mean i don't know where the milk is coming
1: from but Chimacum uh valley yeah they have they have their they have a beautiful raw they do yeah and i i appreciate what they do and i think we need more yeah
0: we definitely need more but and then you you think about like the sadness of losing um the port Townsend creamery right like Wow, they were making gorgeous cheese.
1: I know. That and was
0: so sad. That was yeah. that was very sad. Yeah. Um, but they were trying to get their they had to get their dairy in from elsewhere, the milk product to be able to make the cheese. And when you're on a peninsula, that just gets too costly.
1: Yeah, I think they were getting it from Squim. Were they? Okay. Um and I think that it was more the um infrastructure uh okay having challenges with. okay okay but what a loss, what, mean, a loss what a loss because the um
0: in terms of the balance of their cheeses it was really remarkable cheese yeah um, wow okay so I'm not finished yet because I have more <laughs> things to ask you um I wanted to talk to you about the third thing that excited me in our first conversation which is that you are a baker and and so just before we started this conversation, we were talking about Quillaman, um, which is a French pastry that can only sing in your mouth if it is balanced appropriately. And Sarah, why don't you tell tell them what you said about? We were just talking about quyaman that you can you can buy in different places. Um, but I heard her critique of the difference between how she makes Queen Amon and how somebody else makes Queen Amon um, and, and not in any kind of affronting way, but just in in the vein of being more like a chef. Mm. Um, <laughs> more like a chef. <laughs> so t- t- tell tell people what you said about it.
1: So, well, first off, Queen Amon speaks to me because it is the pastry that has the highest butterfat content. <laughs> that's
0: right. <laughs> I know. It's just like... <laughs> Yeah, pouring
1: fat into your mouth. <laughs> yes. It is so delicious. But the other thing that I love about it is that it has a salty, sweet balance mm-hmm. that is really difficult to get just right. Yes. And the the um it's a laminated dough like a croissant dough. Uh-huh. And and it, it's just to give a little bit further experience. Yeah, yeah you have to
0: understand it. And you can see a picture of it on, well, I think it's just the bottom side. No, no, I have the tops on there. Um, on the website, you can look for the picture of Cuyamon that my my partner made, which we also talked about at this moment, yeah.
1: So imagine um, a croissant, though, that that has been layered with this salty sugar mix. And then the the salty sugar mix is also on the exterior of the pastry and when the pastry bakes that salty sugary mix caramelizes Mm -hmm. so you get this crispy exterior and then you can peel it like a croissant and it's buttery and soft on the inside and has this perfect salty sweet mix Except for when the perfect salty sweet mix isn't perfect, it's
0: too sweet. It's too because sweet. because the, our our palate, like if we were to say there's an American palate, it's it's gone in the direction of excess sugar, yeah. and and so it's hard to reclaim that right from the average bake shop um, yeah. because they 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 have so many people in in bake shops and kitchens have never experienced the the height of that balance that you're talking about. Because with all that butter, you're getting umami, you're getting sweet, you're getting salty, you're hitting and triggering all the buttons that make your neurons pop. Absolutely. And and so what what happens when you get one that is too sweet is it doesn't fire on all cylinders. Yeah, and so you're you're if you know what one tastes like that has that balance, you're left a little deflated. Am I right? You're <laughs> yeah. totally right. You can yeah, have it. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And I said you would like the quema that my, my partner makes yeah. because they're really fabulous. And that the there's also like a little when you think about ratios, the croissant has that outer edge with the the highest caramelization and the flakiness. The, the Cuyamon takes that outer layer and multiplies it by at least six, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so if you like that outer part, it's about the ratio of that crispy caramelized part to the soft interior. Oh, yes. And and this is why you love it. Like, I, I really hadn't eaten them when I was younger. In fact, in culinary school, we never made them in mm-hmm. culinary school. I don't, I'm not too sure why, like, why they wouldn't have taught that to us. But I guess maybe because croissants sell right. better, faster. People are more familiar with them. But I think if you truly love laminated doughs, where you end up as a baker is you will bake these, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so then the next the next question I have for you is when I think about the podcast, I'm always saying, you know, the subversive idea um, behind the podcast. It's not really that subversive, but the idea that we could have world peace through food in a podcast, <laughs> right? And, and everybody's going to laugh the first time they hear that. And yet at the same time, if you agree to be on the podcast, some part of you kind of buys it, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? That, that if we have this holistic energy and approach to the right balance, e- even like the right balance to how much meat we're eating, right? Because that's that has its own environmental impact. But this idea that if we can teach our children Can we teach adults, um, you know, something different about how we relate to food, right? Or how we prepare food or um, some aspect about it, anything. And I've I've had people, you know, say the recipe I would contribute it in is to hug a tree, you know, Mm. and give a curriculum, a lesson plan on hugging a tree. I've had other people give specific recipes on, on quiche or Um, You know, Aaron Stark just gave one on on, uh, berry salsa, really Mm. tapping into the Pacific Northwest Mm. abundance with berries. What lesson or uh, recipe would you contribute into this new home economics Mm. for schools?
1: Well, I think one of the reasons that I was excited about participating in this podcast with you is because I so fundamentally believe in the connection between the bounty of the land, mm-hmm. the foods that we appreciate, and particularly the incredible bounty that we have here in the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. and, and how important it is to have the landscape that grows these foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, you know, I, I just think back on, on my childhood experiences of, digging clams and harvesting crab and mm. and how formative that was mm-hmm. for me and, mm-hmm. and having my first garden at age 11 and okay. and still to this day most of the food that we eat comes from our garden and, uh-huh. including our chickens or you know mm-hmm. the or from someone else's garden, um, because I, I firmly believe that I want to know exactly where my food comes from. Mm-hmm. And so I buy a lamb every year from Solstice Farm and I oh, buy pork from our pork producers and beef from local folks and 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 then grow a lot of our own vegetables. And this year mm-hmm. I've been training the wild trailing blackberries on my garden fence.
0: Oh nice.
1: And I harvested over five gallons. Oh my gosh! That's of amazing. Of the trailing blackberries. Wow! Beautiful. And and just to see them thriving and uh-huh. know that they to me are the crown jewel uh-huh. of the berries. luckily. Oh, yeah, they are. And so, I also believe in nurturing my family through nurturing with food. Mm-hmm. So, and I held that for a long time and owned a bakery and nurtured community oh, through that
0: i didn't even know that gosh there's so much
1: yeah. you are like as magical as a croissant with all the layers <laughs> it's crazy uh, well we used to make 300 croissants every day <laughs> in my bakery so they learned in oh, my, my heart gosh. yeah and that there is a whole different story about the bakery because my very dearest childhood friend and i started our baking career when we were 14 together oh my gosh and then we each ended up owning our own bakeries. Mine was down in California and hers was up on Lopez Island. Oh, and wow. it's still there. Oh my gosh,
0: what's Holly, the name of Holly B's it? Hollybees Bakery. Hollybees Bakery. We're giving you a plug. Yes. If you're on Lopez Island, go find Holly Bee's Bakery.
1: Holly doesn't own it any longer, oh, okay. but they kept the traditions and nice. I worked for her for years after I sold mine. Oh wow. And she had started to have kids. She had a son and two years later had twin sons. Oh my gosh. <laughs> who were my godsons oh. and I I was there for their birth. And then yeah. I had a son uh-huh. and twin sons two years Oh, later. my goodness. And so our children are godbrothers. And Holly oh. and I are still very dear to oh, each other. Oh, that's amazing. Anyway, where was I going with that? I um, know, but
0: that oh. speaks to me of food love just it's right there.
1: Food love <laughs> right there. And, and then cooking on boats in Alaska for people. Wow. Nurturing people mm-hmm. through food of place mm-hmm. is so important to me. Mm-hmm. And... So I it, it just really, I love that connection that you've made through this podcast. Oh, thank you and, so much. Yeah. I'm honored that you would even say that. Because thank you. Well, you. have
0: so much that rides behind making a statement like that. Thank well,
1: you. and I think where I was going with that um, is that, um, you know, the health of my family has been really important. And I've had a couple of my family members have had some pretty severe health challenges mm-hmm. over the last few years. And so I've been trying to support them through food. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is that um, there's no sugar and Uh that there's no grain except for oats. Okay. Okay. So this recipe Uh that I would share would be um, pie that's made with oats and nuts and dates and butter and honey. And then the filling is honey and half of the berries are cooked and half of them are uncooked. Beautiful. There's a little bit of gelatin in there to help okay. firm it up
0: okay i i personally need this recipe okay. <laughs> because we are moving towards no sugar uh, refined sugar yeah um and i have um started to stock my pantry with some date sugar and other things. And already we have like a banana bread recipe that's just with dates that are rehydrated instead. And that's, that's a winner, winner chicken dinner kind of recipe. So yes. So if we could get that recipe (laughs) loaded, please. And, um, and even if you have a picture of it, it somewhere, I think okay. that helps people. We'll we'll share that in the podcast notes. And we have recipe cards that are downloadable once we um, get the podcast up. It's been amazing talking to you. I just, I can't even tell you how I appreciate mm-hmm. you as a member and leader of the community mm-hmm. and what a treasure it is to be able to talk to somebody at this level about laminated dough. <laughs> <laughs> it really usually only happens at home with my partner. Um, and I also want to say that blackberries, to me, you know, there's just been this great learning that has happened for our family um, in being out in the wild more often as a result of some, some of the things we decided to do. But uh, being close to the Olympic Discovery Trail, it is riddled with blackberry bushes everywhere. And terroir comes into play because... You could be walking only the span of 10 feet, but the angle of the sun and which side of the trail the blackberries are on completely impacts the taste and flavor of the blackberry. Yes. It's, uh, um, and I didn't know that because when we first moved here in 2018, we walked Cappy's trails all over the place. And it is like the Garden of Eden, just being able to pluck these berries and and my son is a voracious eater of blackberries. Mm-hmm. He would just pile them into his hands and shove all of them into his <laughs> mouth and his whole face would be covered. And it's really glorious. Like when we pick blackberries, we don't ever expect to eat too many of them because we all we give all of them to him and he mm-hmm. consumes them all. But he has a palate like ours and he he has decided where the best blackberry bushes are because we've noticed this. Whereas in Cappy's trails, we, we never really made that recognition. You know, so much of it is wooded. We would go to the spot where we knew they had the most and they happened to be with the right like sort of angle of the sun. Um, but it's really interesting because even some of them, you know, in some parts, if they're not, um, getting the right sunlight, um, day long sunlight, there's even like you can taste like a mildew taste mm. on some of them. Mm. You have to eat a lot of blackberries, I think, to get to that point, point. <laughs> and we've done that by now. So.
1: Are these the the Himalayan blackberries or the the wild trailing blackberries?
0: Um, so there, I think there are both varieties along the Olympic Discovery Trail where we've spent our time. There are even black raspberries. Oh,
1: yeah, also which so are good.
0: delicious. But I mean, it's amazing because it's just available, you know, and that's something where uh, I, coming from the Midwest, just never knew that. Mm. That wasn't part of my life then, you know, so this concept of bounty to Mm -hmm. know that the land could support you, Mm -hmm. right? The land would give you what you needed and knowing that blackberries are such great brain food, Mm. um, you know, we just were like, our son needs it because his brain is developing, you know, we're kind of past that point. We still need it too, right. For the, the, this, uh, latter half of life, but really, you know, having that access is amazing yeah. and and that your recipe has these berries and that, and I love that it's half, um, uncooked berries because that's like a juicy little pop. So right?
1: good. Yeah. It really makes a difference. And just to follow up on something that you said about cappies, so the story of Cappy's Woods is that it was, I can't remember his first name, maybe John Capriotti, oh, okay. who lived right near 49th and Hendricks. And he loved to go into those woods to pick blackbirds. Oh, really? And, and his family started to call it Cappy's Woods oh. because of his connection to the place because of blackberries Mm -hmm. and and that Cappy's woods is the focus of the land trust quimper wildlife project and that is that is a beautiful place we've gone through there we've
0: biked through there um and the interpretive signage is really amazing like we we will stop and read it to our son so that he has both the you know he has the fun of place And he has like the food beauty, the food love Mm -hmm. of the place. And then he's got this new idea. It's not that new, but this idea of stewardship Mm -hmm. um, that comes from reading those signs. So I definitely encourage people to, you know, take your families, take your friends out there and read the signage. Don't just walk by. Um, There's so much good work happening here. Is there anything else you want to share with this audience? It could be
1: from anywhere. Oh, gosh! I guess um, I, I just think how important understanding your place mm-hmm. is wherever you are, mm-hmm. to take that time to sink in and open your eyes and experience it and understand, you know who are the who are the the wild well, brethren that mm-hmm. live in your in your place? what are the trees and the shrubs and the plants and where does your water come from? And, and what is happening in your landscape and how can you be a better steward of that place? So oh, I, I think that's so important for any of us to understand. And so many of us don't, we just haven't taken the time to, to, Make that deep connection, and you know, our certainly our society doesn't support that. We rely on Google Maps to tell us where we are. Yeah, and oh, you know, it used to be that we would know where the Arroyo was and where that escarpment. And mm. if you ever want to read a fascinating book, it's yeah. called Home. Let's see, Home Ground. Oh Barry Lopez has collected all of these words that we are losing oh. that describe place. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And that as we you know rely more on Google Maps, mm-hmm. we don't need to have that reference to place. It's mm-hmm. where is the nearest Walmart, not where is that landscape feature. That almost so, hurts, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just really encourage everyone to to understand where they live Mm -hmm. and how they can, how they can be a good steward and practice that reciprocity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really about forging that real relationship, right? That authentic relationship with place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and stewardship is something that you do so beautifully, Mm. you know, it looks effortless from the outside. I'm sure it's not. (laughs) Um, And this uh, Jefferson land trust, definitely um, it's a model, for other land trusts mm-hmm. out there across the country. So, if you're hearing this for the first time and you know people in land trusts and other places, um, invite them to take a look at the websites and um, forge relationships, right? Because I think some of these bigger picture challenges, um, th- those things will only get to resolution through the forging of bigger networks. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been such a lovely conversation with you. A long time coming um, and so worthwhile. And I just want to say everything you do speaks to me about food love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food.
1: Thank you, Rufina. I love what you're doing. And (laughs) I really appreciate being invited to participate.